Okay, Peter. Good to see you again. They haven't started counting. There we go. Okay. Okay, Peter. It's good to see you again. And you've got a couple of questions. The first one is once you establish your practice and get it going correctly, what do you do after that? And that is, is that you continue to develop those particular skills. Okay. And as you develop the skills, the things that are worth noting will dwindle away because you're eliminating the new unwholesome things within the wholesome. An example of that is, is that once every thought is wholesome one after another, and that we verified that because we've done a long system of guarding and we know that one wholesome thought is coming after another. That's actually no guarantee that unwholesome thoughts will not arise in the future because they probably will. And the whole quality of our practice is when they do arise that we'll know it. And so now our practice is to still do the same thing, only now we're doing it at a slightly, uh, let us say, more sophisticated uh, and even quicker level. Quicker in the sense of both identifying what's going on faster and are, let us say, noting what's going on faster. And then the second quality would be uh, to make the determination, is this wholesome or not? So that things don't get in the mind and stay unwholesome for a long time, they get routed out really quickly because number one, we're on guard, and number two, we're there to throw that stuff out. So you can imagine that Anapanasati is like the white blood cells of reality. <laughs> okay. Their job, the job of Anapanasati is to go around investigating everything, friend or foe, and if it's foe, it's dead. It's out. <laughs> so, this, what, what, another way of a, uh, answering the question is by saying steady as she goes. Or, never mind, start again. Or, you're going in the right direction, you need the next step, which is exactly the same step that you had before, but now you're three feet closer. Hmm. Okay. Okay. In other words, keep going at it. But like I said, the first thing that's going to go is the wholesome thoughts themselves uh, are a bit of a racket. And so we can just get ourselves into the state of knowing that either this thought is a wholesome thought or is not much of a thought at all. Hmm. And that's when we're really paying attention to our feelings. Okay, so one, once we get to the point where we have the pity and sukha, then that too becomes the object of the meditation. Which means that too, we seize that object and we work with that. And in this case, after we finish with one wholesome thought after another, after another, and we let the thought kind of go, we start paying really close attention to the to the sukha and the pity. And the pity gets big. It gets really wow. It gets like, oh, this really is nice. Okay. And so now we start looking at how good can we feel? 
but then we build that up in a way of how good can we feel and then later over a period of time maybe a day or two or a month or a week or whatever later we begin then to see that the wow is also a bit energetic and so we can let that kind of go at peace just like we let the completely wholesome mind you see when the mind is full of hindrances it's all over the place is jumping it's very agitated when the mind is one wholesome thought after another after another that's a much more sophisticated much more peaceful state but then not having many thoughts at all or not much thinking at all is even more uh restful and peaceful than that and that's because we're paying attention now to feelings Hmm. once we start paying attention to the feelings the feelings get really big and so now we start working with the feelings that uh of letting the wowness factor go down to just subside into really this is so pleasurable it's so nice but it doesn't have the wow so much anymore knowing that we can bring Uh, the wow back anytime we want to yeah okay but the wow is a little bit much after a while yeah is this also the the difference between the Buddha talking in Anapanasati Sutta about experiencing rapture in difference to experiencing pleasure? Yes. In the second tetrad, he says that. So right. This in is the Anapanasati the more... talks about it, and also it's specifically mentioned when they're talking of jhana. That uh, let us say it this way: the hallmark, or the crowning glory, or the uh, the linchpin, or the hook for first jhana, is applied and sustained thought, applying to the wholesome and keeping it. Okay, for the second yeah. jhana, the linchpin, the focal point, the main issue is pity. For the third jhana, the uh, re- reference point is sukha. For the fourth jhana, we start with the reference point of even the sukha melts into equanimity, but this kind of equanimity is really aloof, really above it all. Yeah. Okay, so nothing is is there to bother. And that actually I was talking earlier to Robert about this, is that when we begin to see a Nietzsche, because this fits in exactly with what you were talking. Once we begin to see that everything is in a cycle, everything is in samsara, whether the frequency, and I'll use the frequency in engineering terms, when the frequency is extraordinarily fast, we're down at the picosecond or nanosecond level. Mm. But when we get into visible light, that's at the uh, a much slower frequency then okay the other language would be x-rays gamma rays and visible light rays these very very fast things light rays down into radio waves down into sound waves and there is only the way that humans think about it is there any boundaries in there in science just faster or slower is the only point there are no boundaries for visible light that in fact some animals can see things beyond where humans can see it yeah both in sensitivity and frequency yeah okay and we can also say that even though uh uh ultraviolet radiation we can't see it it'll burn your skin 
if you stay <laughs> yeah. out, right? Yeah. That's very, very high frequency. We can't see that radio, but guess what? There are some animals who can see that. And in fact, yeah. this is how uh, bees collect nectar. Yeah. It's because when a bee has been on a flower, it changes color slightly in a range where humans can't see it, but the, uh, the bees can. So they could look at a whole flower field and say, that particular flower way over there hasn't been visited, and there I'm going. And humans will not have a clue about which flowers to go to. <laughs> They'll pull them all up. They'll destroy the patch because they can't see straight <laughs> the way that the bees can. <laughs> okay, so coming down the scale is sound waves, and below sound waves at about 20 cycles, is where hearing stops, but above that frequency range at 60 and 100 cycles per second, those frequencies actually can be felt and picked up by the body. Mm. Okay. And that that bodily pickup will go even slower than the, uh, than the range of hearing. So an example of that is, is that the very, very low pedal notes on a very high quality pipe organ the notes will be so low that the human here can't hear it anymore, but the whole body is vibrating with that note, and you know what it is. Okay? Yeah. And, and that's kind of uh, spectacular that we can actually feel those, those feelings, those cycles. Mm -hmm. There are other cycles that are much slower than that. Some cycles come in centuries. One cycle we know of uh, with the eons is a 25,000 year cycle and the precession of the equinox of the, uh, uh, um, let us say the zodiac symbols are yeah. like the hands of a clock and it takes one cycle, 25,000 years and each, 12, each clock uh, hour of that is called an age. Yeah, and we started off with the age of Aquarius, or we're now in the age of Aquarius. We know starting with the age of Taurus, and they actually did worship bulls, and then they went to rams, and then they went to fish, and then they now are from Pisces into Aquarius. And this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, 2000. So we're talking about some long cycles here. Mm -hmm. Other cycles happen at other intervals, but the important thing is, is that everything is at a cycle everything mm -hmm. okay politics are on their own kinds of cycles the way that people look at things are on their own kind of cycles and some things interrupt those cycles and start a new cycle and the example was when printing came by first when writing came by that revolutionized humanity started cities then the gutenberg press came by we started printing bibles and that started a hundred years war <laughs> but it was and then the internet comes by and look what kind of changes are, are here also but there's always a lot of unwholesome in the beginning and then it begins mm -hmm. to get purified and more wholesome and you can see how that is in the internet that most people let us say five or ten years ago if it was on the internet it was good enough now we're getting more careful we know yeah. which sites to visit and which sites to avoid, and so and so do the internet providers uh, that provide services like searching. Google knows what kind of places to avoid, which yeah. means then the real garbage begins to get filtered down to the bottom 
because it's mm-hmm. not stirred up anymore. And so therefore, time, over time, wisdom comes in. So wisdom or understanding is one of the kickers that changes us. And Martin Luther King had that statement when he says that the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm. Actually, what he meant to say was that it bends towards uh, knowledge. It bends towards people seeing what's going on, and justice will naturally follow wisdom. Yeah. It just naturally follows. So we're now kind of deep into this issue of everything is on a cycle. When we understand the teaching of the Buddha of Anicca, that's what he means, is that everything is on a cycle, and sometimes when the cycle's completed, it doesn't start up again. Sometimes things fade away and die, like thoughts. Okay, just one thought is a cycle, and then another cycle, but a different thought, and then another cycle, and then a different thought, just like an election, and you have a new president, and then another election, and you have another president, and then another election, you have another president, so things keep changing like this. If we understand that everything is like that, and we really put that as uh, wisdom for the point of contact when we have sati, then we can say, wait a minute, why should I get attached? to what place on that cycle it is. That just because now the cycle is going up doesn't mean the thing because it's eventually going to start coming down. So if it's going to go up and then it's go down, why should I feel bad when it's going up and feel bad when it's going down? Yeah. That's the Dharma right there. If we understand (laughs) the Nietzsche, we understand that everything is going over and over and over again. Why do I have to say I like it because it's this way and I don't like it because it's that way and I like it because it's this way and I don't like it because it's that way and I like it because it's this way and I don't like it because it's that way. Look at the mess of the mind. Yeah. The mind is in a mess because there's just a cycle going on and we're not wise to the cycle. We're ignorantly grasping and clinging to the part of the cycle we like or don't like. And we're missing out on the fact that this is just a cycle. (laughs) It's just a cycle we're on. Yeah. When we see that, we can let go of any particular point that we used to cling to on that Mm -hmm. cycle. So now let's get to the statement that you had. Uh, that in the Pali, it's Anicca Sankara Anatta, Anicca Sankara Dukkha, Anicca Dhamma Anatta. Yeah. Why is that? Okay. Yeah. Why is that? First off, let's understand the distinction between the Dhamma and the Sankara. Once we understand that, then it will fall into place easily, especially if we define it in that context. Okay. The way that we can say it then is is that uh, Dhamma is a superset and that Sankara is a subset. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that means that even in this subset, in this small thing, Anicca... Sankara, uh, excuse me, Sabe, Sankara, and Nietzsche that says that anything within that subset, that little thing, everything in there is constantly changing. 
But there are some things outside of that subset that are not constantly changing. They stay static for a long, long period of time. And what we refer to that in English language, we use the word noble. And an example of that is, is that there's a few noble elements and argon is one of them. What do we mean by a noble element? You just don't mess with other elements. It will not go into combination with them. But in fact, yeah. in the original days, they used tungsten as a filament and argon as the gas for the first working commercial light bulbs. Why? Mm. Because the argon didn't matter how hot the tungsten got, the argon was not going to mess with it. <laughs> Any other kind of atmosphere or gas that you put in there with the tungsten, it's going to destroy the tungsten. They found that even trying to do it with a vacuum, you can't get a perfect vacuum. You could fill that whole area with argon so that all that touches that, that filament is argon. But if you try to take all the gas out, then there's going to be enough left gases in there that are going to get attracted to the heat. They're going to come right in there. Even in a vacuum, if it's not 100% vacuum, it's going to destroy that tungsten filament. But argon won't mess with it. That's noble. Okay, so we mean we know now that there are some things in reality that don't mess with other stuff. They're in fact not in compound, which is exactly what Sankara means. Is Sankara means coming together, stuck together. So you could say it on a physical level that molecules are Sankara. Noble mm. elements are Dharma. Mm. And we can also understand that, that there are other things besides just a few gases here and there that are noble. And another one that you could talk about, that there are some things that are true. They have been true all along. They will remain true. And there is no way for those things to be, become untrue without completely destroying the universe in the process. Mm -hmm. Okay, an example of that would be the strong nuclear force. That's that's been there from a much shorter period of time than day one. It's like microsecond <laughs> one. <laughs> and that strong nuclear force has been there and it remains. So that means that these forces that we're talking about, and there's actually four of them that are primary, but we could call them noble. Four noble forces. The strong, uh, the strong uh, nuclear force is... They actually have a word for it. They call them gluons because mm. they glue things that will not stay together. They glue them together and it takes a mm. huge amount of energy to glue those things together. Protons. Mm. And so that means if you can go in and break those protons up, that's going to release all that gluon energy that's holding them together. Yeah. Then there is the next force, which is the electrons going around the nucleus, and that is called the weak nuclear force. Why do electrons stay running around the, the, the proton-neutron nuke part? But then we begin to say, but there's other things, and that is there's two more. One is, is that because particles can stay together and stuck together, that gives them mass. Hence, you have gravity. And because these electrons can be knocked out of their uh, valence and others can get knocked in or other things like that, that gives us the entire electromagnetic force. So we now have mm -hmm. four noble forces. 
Okay. Let me also tell you that I know of four noble truths. <laughs> what are they? That there yeah. is suffering. Yeah. This is a noble truth. It has been noble before humans were humans. Yeah. And it will remain that way. So long as there are animals that have feelings, there will be bad feelings. Ignorantly. Mm. Because the source of this dukkha is not life itself. This is yeah. a major mistake that a lot of Westerners make when they hear the Four Noble Truths. They immediately say life is suffering. And that's not at all what the Buddha says. What he says yeah. instead is there are, is unsatisfactoriness mm. in the mind. And yeah. he doesn't actually add in the mind, but it's very clear when you see the second noble truth is what's in the mind is wanting things to be different than they are, wanting yeah. things to be good. If it's going up, I like it. I want it to continue going up. And if it's going down and I don't like it, I want it to stop going down. I want to actually stop nature itself. I actually yeah. want to interrupt the rhythms of nature. Yeah. That means that I'm trying to interrupt nature's plan. <laughs> which is exactly what happens with Christians when they pray to God. They want God to change his plan. God don't change plan. <laughs> this stuff is noble. It doesn't change because somebody wants it to change. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've established what noble is as opposed to what is ordinary and that both the ordinary and the noble are together in all of it, and the whole show is in the Dhamma, the big thing, the big it. Mm. And then we can say that within all of it, whether it's in the Sankara or whether it's in the noble part, in no case is there an existing self. Yeah. The self does not permanently exist. It's not hiding away inside of anything. The way that Christians and uh, religious people think of a self or a soul as something that is permanent. But basically yeah. what that is, is it's merely a concept. And it's a concept that helps salve the fear of death. Sure. Because, in fact, the entire job of the self-preservation instinct is to keep an, an organism alive. And the mechanism that it uses to do that or the language that it speaks is, is the language of fear. Which means it's self-preservation. So if I can uh, convince myself with a concept that I'm not going to die, then I feel better. Yeah. But that's a lie. Which means <laughs> that when the truth is found out, people are going to suffer greatly. But there's another yeah. way of thinking about it. And that is it's that I die, but so what? It's not important. It's just part of the cycle. I come and I go. <laughs> nothing yeah. big here at all. Nothing important. <laughs> nothing to see yeah. here. The police says just move along. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Why is that? Because there's really no self that needs to be protected. It's just a self-preservation mechanism that is built mm -hmm. in to keep you safe. And it has, in fact, saved your life at least once. At least once in your life, and maybe many times you decided, oh, I'm not going to go there. It's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Like, for instance, you're about to step out in the street and you hear a car horn and your foot doesn't even hit the pavement. You stop mid-step. <laughs> right? Fear. Yeah. Okay, so that, that self-preservation mechanism gets us safe. 
But there's another way. And that is that we can get ourselves safe through wisdom. Mm -hmm. In other words, we can find ways of avoiding danger. And one of the ways to do that is go to a hut, an empty hut, a pile of straw, uh, 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 a seat under a chair, or the forest. Yeah. Okay. This is what the Buddha recommends for going into seclusion because he's actually talking about going into a place where there's really, really safe. Yeah. And there is where we can experience safety, which means we can experience the issue of no self. There's no self here because there's no self to protect, because the self-preservation mechanism is not operating, because there's nothing to fear. <laughs> this is the whole point about Sabe uh, Sankara uh, Anicca. Uh, anything that can come together will fall apart. And in fact, this teaching of Anicca is the Buddha's understanding of Murphy's Law. The Buddha <laughs> know Murphy's Law 2000, you know, 25 centuries before Murphy figured it out, and he worked for NASA. <laughs> <laughs> and what is that? That anything that can go wrong will go wrong, and it'll go wrong at the worst possible moment. And the Buddha talks about that in the sense of Anicca, Watcha Sankara. Anything that can go wrong, Anicca, will go wrong. Mm hmm any sankara will fall apart it will change it will modify yeah and it modifies and it mostly modifies when it's under stress when it's under pressure when it's mm. dukkha yeah and so there's murphy's law it's just stated completely differently but that's the whole point of anicca dukkha anatta now we can think of and just pin it down and forget about the sankara and the dhamma for a mm -hmm. second and look at the Anicca Dukkha Anatta, which is called the Trimokana, without mm -hmm. having the Sankara and the Dhamma mixed in with it uh, to make things even more complicated. And still people get confused, even with three. The right yeah. way to look at it is look at it as a, a path or a road that you're taking, and you come mm -hmm. across a fork in the road. Mm -hmm. That fork in the road now is the Anicca, something changed. All mm -hmm. roads have forks or uh, uh, intersections. You cannot, what's the use of having a road if it's got no forks and no intersections? <laughs> roads like that don't exist. <laughs> Back to the whole point of everything's in a cycle, right? Yeah. And one of the ways of thinking is, is that the cycle is, is you've got an intersection or, or a, a Y or a divergence followed by narrow or uh, long stretches of road that has no entrance or exit, and then you have another entrance and exit, and you have that repeated on and on and on. That's the definition of a road. A road that has no entrance and no exits is not a road at all. It's just highway paper. <laughs> Maybe it's a runway. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now that we've defined this idea that the, that uh, that Anicca means that we're on a road and we've come to a fork in the road and the one fork or one side is Dukkha and the other fork is Anatta. Hmm. Think of it like that. So it's like a Y and the base of the Y is Anicca and one fork, uh, the top part is Dukkha and the other one is Anatta. So when anything changes, you've got a choice. Are you going to deal with it wisely as if it's not you? 
Are you going to deal with it ignorantly as if it is you? And that's the road to Dukkha. Yeah. And it's really yeah. that simple. You've got a yeah. choice here. Your choice at Anicca Dukkha not At that point of Anicca, when things change, you've got a choice. You're either going yeah. to not like it or get wrapped up in that choice. And therefore, the self is evident. Or the, and therefore, there's going to be remorse or dukkha, liking and not liking. Or you yeah. can choose the other side of not mine, not me. I'm equanimous here. Yeah, I'm aloof. I'm a, I'm above all of that. That's just another one of those Anicca cycles, and it's not me, not mine, and doesn't belong to me, and I, it's not my business. And we're above yeah. it all. Therefore, no dukkha. Yeah. So is this the difference that Buddha's talking about between avicca and vicha, like ignorance and true knowledge? Yes. Or is it something different? No, that's it. The yeah. ignorance is to not know that you have a choice when something changes. Yeah. Which means that instead of taking a new proper action, we merely do the same thing that we have done before. We act in the same way. We react. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when we react to something, that means we're going down the old path. We're going down the way of our karma. We're going down the path to dukkha. Yeah. And that path may be very short. It may be a microsecond. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. that's the path. So yeah. the way to, to understand it is, is that we need to be awake. We need to have sati at that point when things change, which would be also the point of contact so that we could choose how we're going to feel wisely. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, that's so terrible into not my problem. Yeah. And yeah. our society is really, really good in propaganda form in the sense of trying to make everything your problem. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's what German propaganda was uh, with Hitler, but it hasn't changed a bit. Maybe the color <laughs> from red and white to red, white, and blue. But other than that, it's the same propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> red, white, black, excuse me, from red, white, black, to red, white, and blue. But that's the yeah. only thing that's been changed is just the color of the propaganda. And yeah. what is propaganda? The propaganda is, is that things are terrible and it's your fault and you better go do something about it. Come vote for yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so our society is set up to keep us reacting. Yeah. And but now yeah, okay. you recognize yeah. you don't have to react anymore. You can yeah. respond wisely now instead if you can wake up in time before you react. Yeah. So maybe I was also reading the first verse of the Dhammapada where the Buddha says Manopupanga Ma Dhamma. So the mind is the very most important thing, isn't it? So, or to say the mind the is way, the forerunner. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is it? You have the four satipatthanas, but can you say that the mind is the most important by the Buddha giving this statement in no, the Dhammapada? This is basically where that is coming from. There's a sutta that has some background with it. Yeah. Okay. 
And in the sutta, it, it talks about the fact that the Brahmins have a belief system about their kama, you know, their kama machine or their mm-hmm. uh, good action gives good results and bad action gives bad results. And I've even seen their point of view uh, said in a modern text, and we'll get to that in a moment, but let's review what they were talking about. And that is, is that action, physical action can harm someone. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it is strong. It's very much like writing something in stone that once you mm. kill somebody, they're dead. There's no bringing them back. That's it. Okay. The next part is the speech. That speech is like writing in the sand. Mm. That people don't remember it long. After the next wave of the ocean, the tide comes in, and maybe that's forgotten about. But um, but think thinking our thoughts is like writing in the water or writing in the air. That as mm. soon as the writing is finished, it's gone. <laughs> yeah. And because of that, the Brahmins say it's got no weight at all. It's got no power. It's got uh, nothing to it. So you can go around thinking all the bad thoughts you want, so long as you keep your mouth shut and your hands in your pocket. <laughs> Guess what? When the mind is that filthy and that dirty, the hands are not in the pocket and the mouth is not closed. It's always open. It's out and it's like gimme, 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 gimme is what we do. <laughs> so the point then that the Brahmins were making is, is that everything uh, that they said was upside down. And the Buddha makes the point, oh no, the mind is the forerunner. That if you do not have that thought, then yeah. you will not say it. And yeah. if you don't have the thought, then you won't act. That yeah. actions and speech are dependent upon the mind. Okay, yeah. so we say, well, wait a minute, the Buddha has precepts. No, the Buddha didn't have those precepts. He had wisdom. The mm. precepts came centuries later, many centuries mm. later, but they got all, all of the, this, uh, the precepts out of the suttas. So I know where they got them, but they changed them in the process. Okay. Mm. Uh, it's the, the distinction between, let us say, eating fruit fresh off the tree versus eating fruit that's been highly processed. Mm. Okay. That's what we mean now is the precepts are a highly processed fresh fruit from the Buddha in Mm. the sense that if your mind is clean and you don't want anything, then you're unlikely to kill someone. Yeah, definitely. Okay, but now the other Buddhists, they go and they make a rule of it. Oh, thou shalt not kill. Yeah, well, that, that's going too far. Actually, the uh, the uh, the the Pali is Ramani Samatiami, which means I will refrain from killing as a training mechanism. Yeah. In other words, the precepts that. Uh, um, uh, Atenadana is not taking Vairamani Sakabadam Samati Ami is the the training or the coming together of the mind. Okay, when the mind is together, so the training is to avoid taking things that are not uh, that don't belong to you, 
because you could see the dukkha in that. So it still has to do with training the mind, not training the hands. Yeah. So the real point is, is that it's not a matter of what uh, we actually do. It's a matter of what we're thinking Mm. at all levels. But we're Mm. trying to get the beginning students to start thinking because they're so slow, they could begin to think as they're acting. But as they gain skill at it, they begin to um, see what's going on and see the dukkha before they act or before they speak. And an example also of that is, let's just say the two guys are in an argument and neither one of them have a clue about what's going on with the Dhamma. <laughs> and so they argue and they argue and they argue and, as they, and they build up to the point of violence. And then yeah. one person will finally wake up. Oh, this is going nowhere. Why don't we just have a beer and forget about this? Or maybe somebody yeah. comes up and intervenes. If nobody intervenes and if nobody can think about it, that uh, argument will wind up in violence. Yeah. And so you can see a, a husband and wife are fighting at home. And then the, the husband says something that's gone too far. He recognizes it. He finally wakes up. He's still really angry, but he slams the door on the way out. So I've had (laughs) enough of this. That's very, very wise. Why? Because if he stays and fights with the wife, he's going to hurt her. And he knows it. But this is too far into the game. The question is, how soon can we wake up to this? Yeah. This is where it comes with the idea that uh, that the the Arahat, the Anagami, the Sotagami, and the Sotapan have to do with how fast can we wake up yeah and so the way that you could think of it then would be that the the sotapan knows that anger is wrong he's kind of on the alert for it and so if he gets himself into an argument after a few exchanges he'll quit because he knows that this is wrong and he can see it they say in fact up to seven times he'll run his mouth for seven times and then he'll shut up Ordinary people, they'll keep running their mouth. They'll just keep on and on and on and on and on running their mouth. But a soda pine will shut up after a little while. Okay. And yeah. at, at then the next level will be the uh, the once returner, the uh, the Saktigami, is when just one shout. And I've seen that happen. Okay. Like mm-hmm. one hard drive falls over and ah! But that's the end of it right there. Just one outburst is all it takes. And no, no, wait a minute. I'm I'm better than that. I am not going to hassle somebody over something that goes wrong. That's my problem. Okay. And so yeah. we wake up, but we wake up after we've done one outburst. Yeah. But then we get even sharper than that so that we can catch it before the outburst. Yeah. If we can catch it before the outburst, now we have absolutely full control over it. This is the, this is the point of the anagami, the guy who can shut his mouth before he opens it. <laughs> but the arahat, he's got no place to go because it didn't bother him at all in the first place. Yeah. So he's got nothing to say. It's not that he has to stifle that anger. It's because he's got no anger. He's not angry. Therefore, he doesn't have to shout and then suppress one shout or to shout a few times and then figure it out and then stop or to just shout and let it rip for a long time until finally this is really dangerous and then finally. (laughs) So this whole point, this is also has a lot to do about the spiritual path when they talk about 
uh, and AA mentions this, but it's everywhere, and that is uh, hitting rock bottom, hitting a low mm-hmm. spot. What that really means is, is that we don't know how low they can go. But mm-hmm. what we do know is that the deeper into dukkha someone goes, the more likely that pain will wake them up to the fact that they're in pain. Mm-hmm. So as the continuum goes down like this, some people appear when they're good Dhammadus, as soon as the dukkha starts, I got it, I'm out of here. Other yeah. people will come down and they will come down and hit this level and then mm-hmm. they'll come back up. That's right yeah. by for them. Other people will go way down. And then they <laughs> yeah. up, and that's rock bottom for them. And then they'll come up and some people just keep on going and they never figure it out. After they're dead, they don't figure it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how long yeah. can you go until it hurts too much for you to keep going that way? Yeah. And so this is part of the wake up call is, is that now that we know that that uh, that Duca diagonal is there how deep into it are you going to go before you wake up because you will eventually wake up or you're dead those are the only two choices you either got to wake up or you're dead that's almost like when you see that a car crash is coming how soon can you put your foot on the brake yeah you're just going to watch that truck come right at you before you put your brakes on (laughs) or that wall (laughs) <laughs> okay the sooner yeah. you put the brakes on the less damage you're going to do at impact yeah okay now we can say that that's true in uh reality of trucks and whatnot we can also see that that happens almost on a split second level mm-hmm. that if we can put the brakes on it a half a second sooner we can avoid the entire collision yeah and it's very funny, like you, to take that simile you were talking about. Um, if you recognize it really late that you are running around unwholesome thoughts, the the effort you have to bring up to get back into a wholesome state, it's much more than it's like you said. Uh, it's almost like we have to unwind it. You're right. If we yeah. once we get wound up, we have to do some unwinding. If we don't ever get wound <laughs> yeah. up, there's no unwinding to do. <laughs> or if we've yeah. only got one wind on it, there's only one wind to undo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's exactly right. How soon can we wake up? Mm-hmm. Or another way of saying it, once the Anisha happens, how do, how far down the Y fork of Dukkha am I going to go before I wake up to recognize this is not me, this is not who I am, this is not what I want to be. Let me jump over to the other Y fork. Yeah. But it always is triggered by something, and that trigger is always some motion, some movement, some cycling, some anicca. Yeah. That's always a trigger. And so when we see that trigger, if we're alert to those triggers, we can always choose anatta. Yeah. Because really, all of reality is anatta. There really is no self. What there is is a self-preservation mechanism, but it's protecting not the self, it's protecting the organism. Mm -hmm. And the humans are making the mistake, I am the organism. Yeah. 
Well, what is an organism then? I am the feelings. I am the body. I am the thoughts. I am this whole show, this whole Satipatthana. I am that is the big mistake. Yeah. Why? Because that's just going to be dukkha when it's my body. If it's just the body, an example of that, and we do it often, going to the dentist or into surgery. If we give the teeth to the dentist and let him do his work and trust him, then our dental procedures will be easy. If we don't trust that dentist, and we're looking at every little thing that he does and we're feeling with every little probe that he makes and all of that kind of stuff, that's dukkha. Yeah. Yeah. Because we don't trust him. We don't just let him do his thing. Yeah. So we have to, in that regard, if we're going to go to a dentist, you've got to trust the dentist. If you don't trust the dentist, don't go to that one. Go to another <laughs> dentist that you trust, but don't go to a dentist that you don't trust. All you're doing is paying a whole lot of money for a whole lot of misery <laughs> when you yeah. can pay the money without the misery. <laughs> hearing, so, you, hearing you talking about all these things, or all these places you can investigate. It sounds so easy to to do all that. And would you say it is easy or? Well, there's only one thing at a time, though. Yeah. For instance, while you're in the dental chair having the dental work done, you're not in surgery. That's not physically possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So just yeah. one moment at a time, whatever's happening now, let's be alert to it. Yeah. Because we always have a choice to make. What is that choice? Is either not me or I'm stuck in it. Yeah. It's either mine well, or not mine. That's why Bhikkhu Buddha Das is his number one most favorite statement that's written perhaps in every book that he's published or that's been published under his name. And that is the quote, nothing is worth clinging to as I, yeah. me, or mine. Except that the point is, is that you can't cling to anything without I, me, or mine. <laughs> yeah. An example yeah. of that is imagine a balloon that's got a string on it. Yeah. So there's a string. So what? The balloon just floats off into the air because it's got helium or something in it. As opposed to the child holding that string. Grasping and clinging to that string. Why? Because the child has the thought that balloon is mine. Yeah. Okay. Which means that any time that there is any grasping or clinging, there has to be a cling or. Mm-hmm. Without a cling or, there's no clinging. For instance, that balloon can have a string on it, but nobody's clinging to that string, and therefore the blue, the balloon is free. Yeah. So it's only the self which has the identification of mine. Yeah. Ownership. Yeah. And it's that quality of ownership that gives rise to, because it's mine and I own it, if it breaks, then I feel bad because I and mine are the same thing. Um, That happens really in politics quite often. When someone identifies with a particular political party, 
any day something good and something bad is going to happen to every political party. Things happen pretty fast. And in an election, 10,000 things can happen good and 20,000 things can happen <laughs> bad for every political party, right? Yeah. Therefore, if you are identified with a political party, then everything that bad happens to that political party. And I will feel bad because I am Republican. <laughs> yeah. And everything that happens bad to the Republicans and all of that. But I have to defend the Republicans. Why do I have to defend the Republicans? Because they're helpless without me. I'm the, I'm the Republican here. <laughs> and, and Trump and crowd is able to tap into that so easily because everybody mm. has that a feeling or belief. Another example is people who get involved with a sports team and they'll say, it's my team, home yeah. team, right? If that guy goes to the offices of the people who actually own that team, walks in and sits down at the CEO's desk, they're going to throw him out because it's only <laughs> yeah. in his mind that it's his team. And everybody else's yeah. mind, no, that's our team, not yours. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we do really crazy things. Like when we identify with something, that's the same thing as we own it. Mm. This also happens with um, uh, uh, corporations and NGOs are especially good at this. Yeah. What we mean by that is people come and work for an NGO because they want to do good. By joining the NGO, they see the NGO is doing good. Therefore, mm -hmm. because the NGO is doing good, we should keep it going and preserve it. Okay. And so that means then that the ego is tied to it. So the workers of a particular NGO want to keep that NGO functioning and alive because two reasons. One is their job depends upon it, and two, their ID depends upon it, and that's even mm. more important. Okay. Yeah. And you can see things that happen like that. The Red Cross is a clear example of this. 80% of all of the donated money that Red Cross receives goes to support their staff mm. and mm -hmm. advertisements. And only 20% of the money they receive goes to do the original job. Mm. Okay. Only 20% of it. Why? Because the people who work for the NGO and the NGO is more important than the job the NGO was supposed to do in the first place. <laughs> yeah. That's selfishness for you. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And you can see that in many, many NGOs. Mm. In other words, here's the way that they stay it, in fact, because it's well known. And that is the number one job now of the Red Cross is to remain the Red Cross. <laughs> the number one job of an NGO is to remain in the business of being that NGO. Never mind what the NGO originally was trying to do here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is another way of stating that well-known phrase that is known in Washington, D.C. Uh, is kind of a line, line drawing that can be put into a Xerox. And so it's just all over the place. Thousands of photos or uh, reproductions of this. And it's a line drawing of a young man standing in a swamp or a pond and he mm -hmm. is surrounded by alligators in this line drawing and the caption at the bottom is is that 
when you're up to your hips and alligators, it's hard to remember your original intention was to drain the swamp. <laughs> yeah. When you're up to your hip and alligators, it's hard to remember your original intention was to drain the swamp. Well, that's what happens with uh, organizations like the Red Cross. Yeah. Is, is that now their alligators are more important to them than their original mm -hmm. draining of the swamp. In other words, keeping the NGO going is important. And the draining of the swamp, they've forgotten all about that. Yeah. That's what's going on with us also at a, as an ordinary level. And that's especially true when we identify with another organization. Mm -hmm. In this regard, this is where the Buddha talks about part of the freedom is, is to lower the banner. Mm -hmm. There's, in fact, four of them, and that is to fill in the moat or the trench, to set mm -hmm. down the crossbar, uh, to lower the banner, and to unlock the door. Mm -hmm. These are the four qualities of an arahat. Okay. What do we mean by filling in uh, the the boundary or filling in the mode or filling in the trench means that we're no longer expecting an enemy invasion. So we don't have to build ramparts. We don't have to, uh, let us say, require people to have the right kind of visa to get in. Everybody's welcome. Anybody who wants to come mm -hmm. and go, don't keep boundaries anymore. The second one, which is actually the, uh, the one, the second one to mention is actually the first one on the Buddha's list. And it's basically to set down our weapons. We don't carry weapons. We don't carry crossbows or uh, swords with hilts or any of that kind of stuff. So we completely are free from weapons. The third one then is this not identification with any organization, but put down the banner. So any organization that has a banner, a flag or an icon is not worth identifying with. Yeah, not even the Dhamma. Not even the Dhamma. I mean, there yeah. are Buddhist flags for Buddhists to attach to Buddhist flags, but the Dhamma has no flag. Yeah. <laughs> it has yeah. no IT. It has nothing to cling to. Yeah. So when we uh, when we lower the banner or the lower the flag, you can see that the banners, in fact, were used in the old days with warfare. That the, that the Roman soldiers, they used uh, their banners a lot mm. that the, that the uh, uh, the the king or the uh, uh, the generals would know how to deploy troops based upon whether the banner was still up or not and where the forces were and all of that kind of stuff. So it's really really significant that issue of the banner. Mm. Okay, so when you see anything that has a banner, whether it's a red, white, and blue donkey or red, white, and blue elephant, or uh, um, let us say a cross and, and uh, a shield, or perhaps a star and a crescent, whatever the sign is, that's not me. Yeah. I don't identify with anything. Even though Thailand has a flag, when I see the flag of Thailand, I don't think about my country. I just see... <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's just another symbol to not get attached to. <laughs> yeah. And then the last one, which is actually the deepest one of all, and that is to unlock or unbar the door. So we've, we've, we've put down our weapons, 
We filled in the trenches. We don't have the bar. And now even in the inner sanctorum, the home, we don't lock the door. Why? Because mm -hmm. we know that locking a door is not going to keep death out. <laughs> yeah. Death don't need no door to knock on. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so what it, we can also think of it is, is that it really is open heart. Anybody who comes to the door, the door is unlocked. Mm. But then we can greet people in various ways. And the lowest class ways, we could deal with them as if they were a hot enemy. That's the lowest. Mm. The next one would be like a cold war. Like, what the hell do you want? And then the next one of it would be what we call in Buddhism acceptance or toleration. Mm -hmm. Okay. That we tolerate them until they do something wrong and then we hurt them. <laughs> and then acceptance is, is that even if they do wrong, we'll let them get away with it. But we remember that we'll hold them against it. We're keeping score here, you know. <laughs> and then we come up from acceptance into friendship. And that is when we greet them at the door. Hi, how are you doing? Glad to see you. Yeah. But then there's the highest level of all. And that highest level of all has a, uh, a Latin phrase. And that Latin phrase is um, uh, amor fate. Now, amor fate means actually to be in love with fate. But we're not mm -hmm. talking about fate in the Christian sense of what's going to happen a long time from now or that whatever happens is that's a disaster. You deserve it. But we're talking about fate in the sense of whatever is happening right now. Whatever fate brings to my door, I am glad to see it. We become jovial and loving whatever comes to the door that not only is the door unlocked, but they're always a super welcome guest. And we can <laughs> welcome this moment that way. That Wow, I'm really glad to be here now. Yeah. So this is what we mean by unlocking the door completely so that we're completely open to anything that comes. Yeah. And these four then is the sign of the Arahat, the one who has uh, uh, no borders, no boundaries. Mm -hmm. The trench, the ramparts, the uh, moat has all been filled in. We carry no weapons. We're not ha here to either hurt ourselves or to protect ourselves from danger because there's nothing dangerous. Yeah. Why? Because I don't stay in dangerous places. If there was yeah. danger in Onkopangan, I'd go over to Koh Samui. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so there's no danger here. We can put down the weapons, put down our swords, put down our crossbows, put down anything that we would think that we need for protection. Because we don't need protection. Yeah. And yet look at the dialogues that you have, for instance, on Reddit, where everybody is under attack verbally and they think they have to defend themselves verbally. So, in fact, these weapons that we're talking about can often be both mental and verbal as well as physical weapons. Yeah, yeah. But we don't have to de defend ourselves. And so because we don't have to defend ourselves, we don't need these verbal weapons. We don't need these verbal daggers and swords and spikes and arrows and whatnot. Yeah. So um, this is kind of a new way of living. Yeah. 
of just the the automatic assumption for ordinary society is things are dangerous. They need to be checked out. Yeah. Or we need to hide immediately. <laughs> but the noble way is, is that, yeah, it may be dangerous, but I'm going to go check it out. I'm going to find out what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Hearing you talking about all of this, I recognize that my that my mind changed through the practice because there are many stressful situations in everyday life. I now pretty much don't react that much as I was doing before. So. Oh, now you well, that's the Dharma oh. for you. It works, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so maybe that is important. a proof. Mm -hmm. That is a proof of a principle that it that you practice the right way. Everybody says that if people start to practice correctly, they all say it has great fruit, great benefit. The whole life begins to change. The yeah. things that used to bother don't bother anymore. Yeah. We can see that they're part of the cycle. We can see that if I if I grab hold of it, it's going to bite me. I better leave yeah. it alone. It doesn't belong to me. Yeah. And so all and of this even, stuff. Go ahead. Yeah, and even or especially the stressful situations to me are are the best places to practice because it's a real proof whether you are on whether you really transformed your mind already or not. Mm -hmm. That's right. Which means then that we're no longer afraid of being tested. Yeah, yeah. We see it as an opportunity. Yeah. Definitely. A Not way thinking of flexing of... the muscles. Yeah, I can handle that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really great. That's that's actually the uh, the kind of thing that I like to hear from the students. Yeah. Because it shows just one more person showing that this stuff works. Yeah. Not that I didn't know that, but it's good to see it continues to work. Yeah, that the definitely. path of the Buddha has is a functional path has been all along is just sometimes become obscured. Yeah, and this was also a question I was having. Didn't the Buddha teach teach his uh, teachings to everybody also to the people who were not highly intelligent and doctors and whatever he taught it to everybody didn't he so it would work for everybody that that's a question okay um the answer to it is complicated let me give you part of the answer part of the answer is absolutely yes anyone can get enough to do what they need to do okay yeah, anyone can learn enough of the Dhamma. In fact, there's not much to the Dhamma, so which means that uh, someone who is not capable of grasping all the details that you and I talk about, they would get lost in that. But they can still do something if they want to. Yeah, so it has a lot to do with the motivation and the motivation always has to do with how how well can they see the Dukkha. And mm -hmm. even really unintelligent uh, people with no skills and no training in the Dhamma can still see Dukkha in their life. Yeah. And if they can, then they're trainable. Yeah. 
Okay, and let me give you one example of that. There was one uh, student that uh, was passed from one teacher to another uh, because he could not remember any of the chants. Because in the old days, the way that they did it was that they taught the sutta to the students. And after the student memorized it completely, then he was told what it means. Yeah. So they had it memorized so that they had all the details of it, but they didn't quite know how to put it into practice until it was explained to them over and over. But then that sutta becomes a really guiding principle for them for much of their life. But this yeah. one guy couldn't do that. He couldn't remember, even though he would hear mm. the thing over and over mm. and over again, he couldn't remember it. Mm. Um, and some of us can do that kind of stuff and some not. Uh, but it's a, an old form of learning that has both benefits and drawbacks. Mm. An example of that is the madras, where when the kids, it takes them years to do it, but the point of the uh, madras is that the student can recite without prompting the entire Quran. Mm. That skill, and I highly appreciate that skill, but it's not deductive logic. Mm. He cannot suss things out for himself. It's not wisdom, but it is the fact that he can remember. Yeah. And so that's very, very valuable. This guy that we're talking about couldn't do that. He couldn't remember anything. So the Buddha gave him a particular skill to do. And that was he actually gave him a piece of cloth, like a, a wash rag or a hand cloth or whatever like that. And he said, this is your phrase or this is your mantra. As I clean my hands with this cloth, I clean my mind. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that was all that the, this guy needed. So he went off and that was the only thing he practiced. But that was just enough for him. And he was dedicated enough and he became free from suffering just because he had that little mantra. I'm cleaning my mind like I'm cleaning my hands. And here I am all the time. And so the Buddha allowed this monk to walk around with his cloth in his hand, cleaning all the time. <laughs> and yeah. that's all it took. Okay. Imagine yeah. that if we could say the entire Dhamma on one on one um, uh, website. Yeah. Take a piece of cloth and while you're holding it and rubbing your hands <laughs> with that cloth, say, as I clean yeah. this, my hands with this cloth, I clean my mind. Full Dhamma. No more. No suttas. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. That's the whole show. And yeah. that would be enough. But for intellectual yeah. people, they'll read that and they'll say, well, that's not enough. I want more. Yeah. So yeah. it depends upon the mind of the individual as to what they can handle and also whether or not they can see dukkha or not. Yeah. Because a lot of people can't see dukkha. They don't want to yeah. see it. They're not supposed to see it. It's bad, yeah. you know. Yeah. And because it's bad and they're not supposed to have any of it, they're not supposed to see it, therefore... They won't look at it. Yeah. Church moms are like this. The church ladies. <laughs> the church ladies. Why? Well, because the church ladies are always going around saying this is wrong and that's wrong. And they never look that's at the it. fact that they're actually causing trouble rather than trying to solve it. They're actually out there okay. trying to solve trouble, but then boy, do they cause it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Yeah. Why? Because they can't see the dukkha. If she, yeah. if the church lady can see the dukkha and see what she's doing, she will shut her mouth. But unfortunately, church ladies don't. Yeah. That's why they're known as church ladies. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you're talking about a mantra because I don't use mantras, but in there are many situations in everyday life where I recognize that there is stress and then I start by investigating like, okay, there's stress. And then I start to arouse the factors that are important to get rid of the stress, like awareness. Then I arouse awareness, becoming mm -hmm. aware of what I'm doing. Then the next step, arousing wholesome thoughts. And yet yeah, it's not like a mantra, but it's like always using the same tool. Would you recommend that? Like, having a strong tool, like starting over and over again, the same process, or doesn't it matter if you just put up wholesome thoughts, whatever it is? Um, there is room for mantras. And in the case that we just gave you of, the, of this guy, it was a good starting point because there were no other good starting points. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But generally what we can say is, is that Mantras are so powerful because they're so short. Yeah. And because they're so short, that means that we keep repeating them over and over and over again. And each time we do, we build a little sati. Yeah. Okay. This is, in fact, um, a, a, an example of how this is used is in the, the mantra Budo. Yeah. Now th there's a lot of different ways of using it, but the but the most beneficial is when the mind is completely wholesome, so that mm -hmm. there are no thoughts left but wholesome. Then the most wholesome thought that we could have right then and there would be this word boo, do, boo mm -hmm. on the in breath and do on the out breath. Mm -hmm. With that the only word, that means that now the mind is really, really focused in the wholesome, and there's only one thought happening, which means that then this thought is fairly easy to let go of because the mind is so focused mm -hmm. that all the wholesome thoughts are down to just two words. Yeah. Well, taking two words out of one's vocabulary is easy enough to do with some practice. I yeah. know because I've taken the word try and the word should out of my vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> and at the right time, boo and doe can be also removed from the vocabulary. But in that case, now there's nothing left as far as language goes. And there's nothing left but then the feelings of the pity and the sukha to be investigated. So this is yeah. where mantras become extraordinarily valuable as a tool to be used already in the first jhana to limit mm. the number of thoughts so that we can get closer and closer to the second jhana. Ah, okay, okay. I see, yeah. But they can be started right from the beginning. 
I mean, if yeah. we're going to say un, uh, only wholesome thoughts, okay, Budo, 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 you know, keep going. Yeah. And there's nothing else to say, but Budo, that's all wholesome. <laughs> <laughs> so we yeah. could start with the mantra, but most people can't. They'll have a boo and then a bunch of thoughts and then a dough and have yeah. a bunch of more thoughts, another boo and have a bunch of thoughts. Okay. So in that regard, the mantra is not doing a whole lot. Yeah. But if we have it down to a phrase, something like, as I'm cleaning my hands with this cloth, I clean my mind. Yeah. So yeah. with that one thought over and over and over again, there's nothing much left in the mind to think about. Yeah. I sometimes I have the feeling that similes are so powerful in arousing wholesome thoughts. I often think about the sentence of the Buddha saying, um, just like the ocean has only one taste, salty, the Dhamma has only one taste. One taste. That, yeah, taste freedom. Freedom. Yeah, and as I think of the simile, saying it very aware with, with sati, I, it feels so powerful or so easy to arouse wholesome thoughts by using the similes. So I was also asking myself whether it is correct practice to use similes as part of sati and Absolutely. Every day. You already answered your question. Of course. <laughs> because certainly. Yeah, say. because it's wholesome. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you say, well, wait a minute. It's almost like too easy. We're we're taking a shortcut here. We're not doing it the correct yeah. way. And the answer is, is that no, this is the correct way. Take that shortcut. Go right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also reading the Sutta Nipata the, and other poems of the Buddha uh, in my time when I was a kid or uh, a youth, like poems were didn't really mean much to me. But now using poems and all that stuff feels so powerful in practicing. Yeah. Much of the Dhamma of the suttas and the Pali language is very poetic. The language itself is, is set up to be poetic because of the endings of the words mm. that have to do with case, gender, uh, tense, mm. all of that kind of stuff is uh, done in the end of the word, which means that uh, in the beginning, it's kind of hard to figure stuff out. An, an example of that is the word hoti and hantu. Mm is mm -hmm. the same root word mm. but hoti means okay. right now and hantu means for all time it's just a tense mm. a verb tense okay which means that if you're going to do a poem you can set it up so that the verbs are the last thing in the sentence which means it always rhymes because you've got the same tense throughout yeah okay okay so yeah. with that that makes that poetry very easy for the uh, the Pali language when it's not so easy in English. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the German, in fact, is better poetry than English. English is just not a good language for poetry. <laughs> 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 but Pali is. And because of yeah. that, there is a lot of the stuff in, in Pali that's just naturally poetic. There's also yeah. the story of one monk who was very slow to speak, but whenever he did speak, he was absolutely amazing because he spoke everything in poetry. Mm. Everything yeah. he said was poetic. Then you go to the uh, Teragitha and the Teragatha, 
which is also mm-hmm. very, very ancient writings. And you'll see that those, in fact, are the the songs or the hymns or the poems uh-huh. of the elders uh, of, uh, of the Bakunis and the Bhikkhus. OK, the Terry Geetha and the Tara Geetha. Yeah. The Terry Geetha is for the gay, uh, the, the Bakunis and the Tara Geetha is for the uh, for the monks. But you can yeah. see the Terry and the Terry is for the uh, is is the um, the gender there, but mm-hmm. it's in the middle of the word. But then that can be used with poetry also. Yeah, is that the the middle of the words can also kind of match up because they've got uh, uh, gender in there. <laughs> so yeah. the Terry Geetha and the Terra Geetha are both highly poetic. They're in blank mm. verse. Normally, the way to translate it is to translate it and keep the verse form, even if mm. it's not, uh, even if it's English translation into blank verse, it's still poetically set up in verse form the way that it was originally. Yeah. There is actually yeah. verse forms in several of the suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya that is not prose, it's poetry. Mm. Okay. And also, that's why it's highly repetitive. But in fact, you know that our, in our song form today, you will have uh, a verse and then a chorus, and then another verse that's different from the first verse, and then a chorus, which is the same as the first chorus, and then third verse, and then the chorus is the same. And that's the yeah. uh, form. Okay, guess what? The suttas are, start, are set up that way. Yeah. But the translators take all of the chorus out. Once they put the chorus in just one time, they will leave the uh, the chorus out with uh, ellipsis. Yeah. And yeah. they miss the whole point of the song by taking the chorus rep- repetitions out. But yeah. the monks, when they're chanting, that's the best part. Yeah. It's the chorus. Yeah. In fact, the reason they call it the, re- uh, the chorus, the more proper word would be the refrain. Yeah, <laughs> but we call it the chorus because everybody sings the chorus. <laughs> it's the chorus. It's a choir, right? Yeah. <laughs> so all the monks know the chorus, except in the Pali translations into English, they don't bother to put the chorus in there. They put little yeah. three dots. Watch for especially Bhikkhu Bodhi's little three dots. His ellipsis. Yeah, I've seen that. That shows yeah. that he's lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Or at that moment when those three dots came up, there was, that was lazy. Also, the yeah. book, I got to be honest with you, the book would at least be double the size. Instead yeah. of 1,500 pages, it'd be about 3,000 pages. If, <laughs> yeah. if all of the, um, the chorus lines are taken out. Taken out. Yeah. So, poet, poetry. Everything is poetry. But the important point about poetry is repetition. Mm-hmm. That's the whole quality of the Dhamma is, is that it has to be repeated over and over and over again. This wholesome stuff has to be done over and over and over again to kind of counterbalance the fact that we spent so many years in chaotic, unwholesome thought. Yeah. It means that we're wired for chaotic, unwholesome thought, and we need to rewire it with these repetition of things that happen over and over and over again. Yeah. And that's quite amazing when it comes to learning, learning poetry, is that if you don't repeat a poem, you're going to forget a few lines here and there. That, I, yeah. that happens with me in the Pali, and it happens also in some of the old poems that I remember. 
Yeah. But learning poetry is a very, very good skill. Yeah. To be able to memorize something and keep it going and keeping track, especially when you go to the chorus lines, one after the other, after the other, we hit these choruses. And that's when the, in fact, in, in the typical uh, Wat that I know of in Thailand, you go in there for the morning chants. And when the chorus happens, the whole sound of the entire group gets higher volume. <laughs> it's louder <laughs> because people yeah. are more confident because they know the chorus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's the whole idea then is, is that it's repeated over and over and over again. And when it's repeated over and over again, it becomes very familiar. Listen to that word familiar. It's the word family. Family yeah. is that which we know because we've been in it over and over and over again. This is yeah. what uh, this is also what we mean by the comfort zone. Yeah, is that we know this because we've repeated it over and over and over again. This is actually yeah. sati. That's the Eightfold Noble Path. It's all based upon repetition. Yeah, that's the whole show, over and over yeah. and over again. Whether it's the mantra or whatever it is it's always one wholesome thought after another over and over and over again yeah and it's also and so like then the question will say yeah. yeah but what do i do next what do you sing yeah. the second verse same as the first <laughs> what do we do now <laughs> well we sing the chorus same as the first <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah which was about your original question. Now that I know how to practice, what do I do? The answer is now you know how to practice, really practice, because you're good at it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, um, I hope that we've answered the two questions that you had, which were actually yeah. interrelated. Yeah. And that yeah, was a nature dukkha and anatta, and also uh, what we were talking about in the sense of the wholesome thoughts and whatnot. Yeah. And what do we do next? What do we do next? We sing the song again. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thank you, Bante, for this talk. Thank you very okay. much. We'll see you. See you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye.